Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. This show is a bit different than previous episodes. This is an extended episode, so almost clocking in at about two hours, and it features a session from AAVMC's Dean's Leadership Conference, which was held in in January 2021. This session is entitled Systemic Sustainable Approaches to Expand Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Academic Institutions. We thought that we'd share the audio version of this session in its entirety because it was such a powerful discussion with three academic luminaries who are deeply concerned about diversity in higher education and specifically in medical education. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Great. As a reminder, uh, the Dean's Leadership Conference started in the 1980s, and it's an opportunity for the deans to consider and address issues of opportunities and challenges shaping the future of academic veterinary medicine. And it's focused uh, in an executive-style format. In recent years, of course, we've had industrial leadership panels, which provided corporate executives and academic leaders to exchange their perspectives. Today, our virtual session is focused on an important topic for all of our members how educational institutions develop and sustain systemic-wide programs to enhance and expand diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. To set the stage for our session, um, I'll provide a brief introduction of the topic and introduce our moderator for today. We will be welcoming your questions, as Andy mentioned, via the chat function, so please be thinking about that for our panelists and and send those uh, in as as you have those questions come up. The AVMC has affirmed the value of diversity within the veterinary medical profession. As all of our members know, our members are committed to incorporating this belief into actions by advocating for the recruitment and retention of underrepresented persons as students and faculty, and ultimately their success within the veterinary profession. But contrary to societal trends, of course, veterinary medicine remains one of the least diverse professions in the United States. However, our efforts to attract a student body uh, that is more reflective of society as a whole have resulted in diversification of the applicant pool. And the number of racial and ethnically underrepresented students is currently about 20% of our total enrollment. And that figure continues to grow as you'll hear about. And it's increased substantially since 2005 with the launch of Diversity Matters Initiative within the AVMC. We've achieved these results by conducting fairs, disseminate information of career opportunities for a variety of communities, and have worked to generate interest in veterinary medicine at key diversity meetings and conferences to help lead students through the application process. Many of the programs of the associations are involved related to diversity, equity, and inclusion are listed on our website. And if you haven't reviewed those uh, recently, I'd encourage you to take your time to visit those. I'd like to introduce our moderator for today, uh, Dr. Lisa Greenhill. Of course, many of our members already know Lisa, but let me just uh, briefly mention her background. Dr. Greenhill originally joined the AABMC in 1996 and in 2004 took on the role of the Associate 
Executive Director for Institution Research and Diversity, becoming the Senior Director of Institutional Research and Diversity after that. Her work primarily focuses on the ongoing development and implementation of the Diversity Matters Initiative at the national and um, local level. Do we need to do it right now? As well as promoting the veterinary medical profession within underrepresented and marginalized communities. She also directs the association's national research agenda in which she collects and analyzes data and produces reports related to academic veterinary medicine to include the applicant pool, enrollment, institutional uh, economic impact and diversity. She earned a master's degree in public administration with a specialization in health policy from George Mason University and her doctorate in higher education of administration and organizational change from Benedictine University. She's a mother of a teenage daughter and the owner of a fun-loving puppy who may appear today, we don't know. Uh, and we're very uh, happy to have her on um, to her variety. I, I follow her on social media and really enjoy all of her posts. She's currently runs a blog uh, about adoption in communities of color and is the creator and host, as Andy mentioned, of a podcast, Diversity and Inclusion On Air, Conversations About Diversity, Inclusion, and Veterinary Medicine, which is launched in the fall of 2015. This podcast uh, provided a dedicated outlet for these issues of interest and often with entertaining guests. Some of you uh, may have been already on the show and covers a wide range of topics and guests and features uh, from across the profession and beyond. In fact, this session today, as mentioned, will be repurposed for a future broadcast. So let me turn the rest of the introductions and moderation of our panel today to Dr. Greenhill. Lisa, thank you so much for serving in this role today and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, my pleasure for uh, to be here. I am so excited. So why don't we just go ahead and dive in. During the last year, we have experienced a pandemic, social unrest related to extrajudicial killings, and most recently rioting within the halls of Capitol Hill. Needless to say, this has been a pretty tumultuous year. Uh, a common element threaded throughout these events are race and certainly other forms of diversity. Um, and how disproportionately people of color have been impacted by COVID-19, police brutality, and now the rise of white nationalism propelling aspects of the, in the recent insurrection in the Capitol. For leaders, this has been a really challenging time, juggling even more decisions than usual, even if they are decisions being made from home. Uh, one big decision uh, that leaders have had to reckon with this last year is really kind of how to create and sustain academic systems that really truly embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion that foster also sense of, of security and safety for students, faculty, and staff. And those environments that really prepare students and other trainees to tackle the kind of trifecta of diversity challenges before them. So to discuss all of this, I am really delighted um, to welcome an esteemed panel of guests this afternoon. Um, first, I'd like to introduce my association colleague, uh, Dr. David Acosta. Uh, David is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer with the Association of American Veterinary, I'm sorry, American Medical Colleges. Habit to throw veterinary in there all the time. Dr. Acosta uh, is a family medicine physician, pre and he previously served at the UC Davis School of Medicine as the Senior Associate Dean for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. He was also the Associate Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion and the Chief Diversity Officer for the UC Davis Health System. 
We're also joined by Dr. Renetta Garrison Tull, who currently serves as the UC Davis Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Tull previously served as the Associate Vice Provost for Strategic Initiatives at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, there, she was also professor of practice at UMBC's College of Engineering and IT. She also served as the University System of Maryland's as you served the University System of Maryland as special assistant to the senior vice chancellor of academic affairs and student affairs, and was the system's director of graduate and professional pipeline development. So, welcome. Lastly, and certainly not least, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. James Hildreth to the panel. Dr. Hildreth is the 12th president and chief executive officer of the Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. Like our preceding panelists, Dr. Hildreth has had a long and illustrious career in academia and in health professions. Some notables include being the first African-American Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas, the first African-American to earn a full professorship with uh, tenure in the basic sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I noted that that was in 2002. This is not ancient history, folks, <laughs> not ancient history. This also uh, was the dean at the UC Davis uh, College of Biological Sciences, incidentally, also being the first uh, African-American to hold a deanship within the university. And that was in 2011. Again, so recent. Um, and finally, he recently served as um, on the FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, which gave uh, the recent emergency use approvals for the COVID vaccines. Um, I'm totally fangirling over the entire panel right now. I'm very, very excited um, to uh, engage in this conversation with you all. I would be remiss um, uh, if I did not point out that somehow all of the panelists seem to have a connection to UC Davis. Dr. Larry Moore and I were talking about this earlier. And as I, I told him, my, my daughter would say, hmm, this is suspicious. Um, so um, shout out to UC Davis. And uh, before we just dive in, a bit of housekeeping again, please feel free to drop your uh, comments and questions into the chat. I will be monitoring that during the discussion and feel free to use those emoticons um, as well. So uh, let's get started. Um, so Dr. Tull, I'm going to start with you. What is the role of academic leaders in talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in education in this moment? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Greenhill. And I would like to thank Dr. McCabe and Dr. Lairmore for inviting me. And hello to everyone uh, who's on the call today and to my esteemed panelists. Um, I, I think, Dr. Greenhill, one of the things to just put out there from the beginning is that you have to give it voice. Uh, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, this is an area that we as leaders cannot shy away from. We can't be silent. We can't hold back. Um, we may need to partner with other groups if we're not as comfortable or if there are leaders who aren't as comfortable yet, but it can't be ignored and it can't be sort of shoved under a rug or, or with the hope that maybe it'll just go away because um, it's not going away. Things have really come to the fore. You've talked about a reckoning that has already occurred. And it, as we say, it's like the, the train has already left the station. Now we have people who are not only more empowered, but they um, they are willing to put their, their jobs, their reputations, all kinds of things on the line for the sake of having things be right. And so as leaders, I think we have to embrace that. We have to make sure that there are people who are part of the conversation, a transparent conversation um, about what's happening 
be willing to address histories of what has happened in the past in your departments or institution that may have brought various kinds of issues to uh, to the forefront. It, it could even be histories within the profession that have brought various kinds of um, inequities forward and they have been passed forward through decades and be willing to face that, be willing to, to talk about it and to, um, to share it, to have conversation and dialogue. Thank you so much. Yes, that reckoning of kind of the history and dealing with that, um, those historical contexts and the realities of, of, of things is just so important. Um, uh, Dr. Hildreth, would you like to weigh in? What, what would you say is, is the role? Uh, first, uh, thank you, Dr. Greenhill, and, and thanks to uh, Dr. McCabe and my friend and colleague, uh, Michael Laramore, who was a great colleague during my time there at Davis. So shout out to him especially, and thanks. Um, in my opinion, leaders have to be the voice for diversity and inclusion. They have to speak it continually. Every chance they have, they have to make it clear that it's a priority for them. And I'd like to focus that the leaders are most important when it comes to inclusion. And what I mean by that is making sure that you have a diverse group of leaders in your institution. Because if you don't have that, you can't really say you have an inclusive environment. So if the leadership of an institution is not diverse, um, you really don't have the kind of environment that's gonna be conducive to having an inclusive, all-inclusive environment for your trainees and all the others who come to your institutions on a daily basis. So. From my perspective, that's where the leaders are most important when it comes to being inclusive, because you can make the you can make the decisions that show that that demonstrate that. But you, we have to express the vision. I mean, it's our job to to express that vision and to live it, so to speak. So. So I have a quick follow up for you, though, and that is in veterinary medicine, um, we have uh, kind of faculty that are only about, I'd say about less than 20 percent um, non-white faculty. Um, we certainly have faculty who um, certainly bring foreign, uh, who are foreign nationals, who also bring another kind of diversity uh, to um, veterinary academia, but what do you do, I guess, as a, as a dean um, when the pool seems so limited? Well, I can just tell you that when I was at Johns Hopkins uh, for 23 years, I was the one and only African-American faculty member out of 300 basic science faculty for the whole time I was there. And my dean made it a point to make sure I was included in academic leadership programs. I mean, I think there was some potential there. And oftentimes I thought, are you doing this just because I'm the only African-American on the faculty, which is, which is an easy conclusion to draw. But what I'm saying is that if you have faculty members who are from diverse uh, backgrounds, and you think they have potential to be leaders, one thing you can do is to make sure they have the development opportunities to become the leader you think they can be. But oftentimes we don't have that. We don't get those opportunities. So that's one thing you can do if you have a small number is to, to make some effort to, to, to first see if there's potential there and then be intentional about making sure that potential gets developed because that's what happened. I was the first associate dean for graduate studies in the history of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. They had never had one before. But because I expressed interest in graduate student concerns, the dean 
singled me out for development as such, and I became the first dean. And that's where my leadership in academics started, is by the dean making sure I had that opportunity. So um, my answer would be to look for opportunities to have those folks be developed as leaders. Thank you so much. Uh, and Dr. Acosta, I'm, I'm kind of curious about um, your thoughts on this question of kind of what's the role of academic leaders, particularly having served um, at uh, a school of medicine in that role where this was, you know, this was this was your thing. Thanks. And again, I want to th <clears throat> thanks Dr. Larimore and Dr. McCabe for having us. And Lisa, thank you for, for moderating for this and welcome to all as well. No, and again, just to piggyback on some of the ideas that I think Renetta and James have already talked about, um, just want to start by saying that, you know, leadership matters. There's actually literature that's out there. This is not about the programs we have. It's not about just the initiatives. But as James is alluding to is the fact that leadership does matter, and it doesn't matter what color of skin you have. It's about having the forewith and, and understanding and how you value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how you communicate that. And I think it has to be a, a priority. This comes from the top, and, the, and it comes from those in the in leadership positions of all of our participants today. If you value it, you make it a priority, and you make it clear that it's a priority. And that also is connected with expectations. Have clear expectations for the other leaders that are within your institution that this is a priority. If they don't understand what that means, as James was saying, delineate what that clear vision really is and what those expectations are. And with expectations comes responsibility and it comes also holding them accountable for those responsibilities and expectations. <clears throat> to the point that most, some of the most successful things that I've seen is where we have leadership, actually the Dean providing this scope of work that's expected. It's written out, it is documented that people can actually see and visualize, I think is important. I think also embedding DNI, it's so important that it gets embedded into the institution's strategic plan. It's not an offshoot, it's not a standalone thing, but it's embedded into everything that the institution does from policies to practices, hiring practices, admissions, curriculum, uh, employment relations. It's embedded in everything that we do from operations to even the mission side of it as well. Um, I think, again, the biggest job and the biggest role that they have is also holding other leaders to buy into this. Now, clearly in our, in, our, in our institutions too, we have naysayers and naysayers are still important to bring to the table because we have to figure out and find out where the resistance is, why it's there, how to get there, but more importantly, how, do we, how can we begin to diffuse that? I don't need everybody on the bus when I get started, but again, I will drive the bus around the block and open the doors up for those that are sitting on the outside bench and still invite them in if they're ready to get on the bus. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that when you have, <clears throat> when you have put people in charge to lead the charge, meaning your chief diversity officers, your associate deans or vice chancellors of diversity that are in place, then I think it's really important for the top leadership to empower them, to ensure that they're at the table. And I'm talking about the C-suite and I'm talking about the room where decisions are being made. Um, but make them really visible, I think, to the institution, to each of the departments, but also openly giving them the authority that they need in order to do the work, that give them some decision power uh, for the DEI matters that they're going to be encountering. Uh, find that voice that Renetta was talking about. Allow them to have that voice 
to the point that ultimately people will recognize their voice represents the voice of the highest uh, power that's in that institution as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, we have a a follow-up question um, that really kind of speaks to that um, professional development and like grooming towards leadership. And the question is, um, do folks that kind of get those opportunities um, at all feel angsty, (laughs) if you will, for lack of a better word, about being selected for that because there may be um, uh, kind of the diversity tax? Right. Is there a diversity tax in serving on those committees and going to those extra programs um, that might feel burdensome? And if so, um, how, you know, what guidance might we uh, give to leaders as they're selecting folks for these opportunities? And I think that's a really important consideration. Um, There is a tax that is sometimes paid by minority faculty. My own story is that, uh, as, as I shared with you, for my whole time at Hopkins, for all those 23 years, I was the only African-American faculty member out of 300. So whenever an issue came up related to race or diversity, the dean would always call me, even as an assistant professor, and ask me if I would get involved in helping to deal with those issues. Um, and I remember that my mentor, my department chair, Dr. Tom August, one day, came to my office, my little tiny office, and said, please come with me, we're going to the dean's office. And you might imagine that as a young, you know, assistant professor trying to become an associate professor, being marched to the dean's office by your chair is not necessarily uh, something that makes you feel good on the inside. So when we got there, Dr. August did something quite extraordinary. He had me sit down and he actually told Dean Johns I need you to leave James alone. Those are his exact words. Because every time something came up related to race, Dean Johns would call me and ask me to get involved. And as Tom explained it to the dean, I'm trying to get my program going like everybody else. I'm trying to get my grants funded like everybody else. And it's really unfair that I'd be called upon to do this. Um, And I've never really had anyone advocate for me in that way before. And my... uh, my admiration and uh, what I thought of Dr. August from that point was was because no one had advocated for me like that. And Dr. August, of course, is a white white man, but he 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 did that for me for the dean. Um, and I think it's really important that when you have conversations with persons who are not normally are not normally considered for these kinds of roles, you be very explicit about the fact. Just say it. I'm not having this conversation with you because of your race, because of your gender. I'm having this conversation with you because I think you have real potential. And when you do that, you vaccinate or immunize the person against some of the thoughts they may have of I'm being chosen for this because of what I look like. And you'd be amazed at what those words, just saying those words can do to change a situation just by being very explicit about your intentions and your motivations. And that's the one thing I really appreciated by Dr. August. If you screwed up, he will let you know with some very colorful terms that you screwed up. If you did well, he would do the same. So, and that that made a real difference for all of us, that he was always very explicit in making sure we understood what his motivations were for the conversations we were having. So I would just offer that as some advice to just be very explicit about that. Because there's always going to be the voice in the back of one's head 
if they have the imposter syndrome, okay, I know why you're doing this. You don't really care about my future or my career. So just be explicit in saying those things to them. It makes a huge difference. That's great. That's great. So identify that talent and put it in that, that grooming pipeline. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'm kind of uh, really interested, going back to uh, Dr. Acosta, um, having served uh, certainly at um, within institutions, but also at an association, what do you think are really the two or three really essential elements of sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in academic institutions? What works? So I think what works, uh, Lisa, is you have to have sustained commitment to this. It's not just a one-off. It's not just related to a grant that I get that's gonna last for a certain amount of years. And when the grant goes away, the commitment, the priority goes away. I think there's gotta be a commitment to sustaining. Um, the commitment from the top has to be there. You know, we're really blessed right now that I have a CEO president that is a top priority when he first came to the AAMC a little over a year ago. Um, and I think that has made the difference because of his commitment to it. And I, we don't have a meeting where it is never mentioned. It is always mentioned and always, again, interwoven what we do. I think the second piece about it that makes it real, though, is the fact that, um, you know, when you have leaders that realize that DEI is an investment and it's an investment like anything else we do in academe or in any in any business. Um, we put, you have to put forward um, that, those committed resources to make this happen and look at it as an investment. And at the same time, think about the return of that investment that's there. And frequently we don't do it because, again, for, for many different reasons. But I think that sustained committed resources, the essential pieces of that is making sure that you have dedicated staff who have content expertise and experience on it every, so the demonstrated capacity for it. Mm -hmm. um, that are also, like I mentioned before, that are giving the uh, decision-making authority and a power of responsibility uh, as well. Two, it also means finance. And people don't like to talk about financial, but the reality is there's nothing I invest in in a company I work at or in an institution. It's, if, for example, if I'm going to start up a, a new institution on precision medicine, you know, Yes, I'm going to get grants, but I'm also going to cough up and match some of those fundings. I'm going to invest in it from a financial standpoint. And I think we just got to look at DEI in the same way that we look at other innovative and creative programs that we do, that we have to allot that. And it doesn't have to be on the soul, the souls of, you know, the central office, the president's office or, or the dean's office. You know, everybody should have a hand in it. And the places that I see that have best practices I'm even finding with the leadership also contributes something from each of the departments into the pool where the dean will match that funding for that. There's nothing like committing a, uh, an amount from your budget that makes you buy in and being held accountable to that. But it also demonstrates, I think, to the rest of your faculty, your staff, your students, your graduates uh, as well, that you truly are committed to that and sustaining those. Um, and then I think the, the other important thing is that <clears throat> Probably the third one for me would be having a transparent accountability system that's in place. And I think that's where we falter. We do all these other things and put them in place, <clears throat> such as programs, putting some money forward, but we really haven't really um, put the final tap on it by developing equity metrics, 
um, that we can rely on, that we can be transparent with and basically begin to essentially show our laundry to everybody, right? And how we're doing. And if we're seeing best practices, how can we share? If I see another department that's doing wonderful work that I'm struggling in, I want to have that ability to be able to talk to each other to figure out how do I, how'd you do it? Or if I'm failing and other people are failing, it also pushes your leadership to saying, what's going on? Maybe we need to re, um, you know, re-look at you know, our targeted goals, or maybe we look at our metrics in a different way, or we look at the people that are actually doing the work or helping, helping us do that work. So I think it's, I think the important piece about the accountability system that also gets holds up, you know, the commitment, you know, at bay, which I think is really important, not as a punishment. So that's the other thing I want to say. Mm-hmm. It's more about rewarding people for the work that they do and showcasing what they can do. And as a result of that, I think it also needs the accountability piece also means that DEI efforts should be part of everybody's performance evaluation, including our top leaders as well. Um, that every one to two years that the department chairs, for an example, are evaluated by their dean on their DEI goals and how successful they've been. Their Office of Diversity and Inclusion, Equity and Inclusion can help the department chairs in reaching those goals and giving them some great ideas about how to get them and how to create those metrics. Hey, positive reinforcement. We, this, this veterinary folks, we certainly know all about that with lots of treats, right? Lots of, <laughs> lots of treats. So Dr. Hall, I want to um, get you back in here and I'm really interested in, in your thoughts on, on what are those kind of key elements um, that um, um, you found in your work. And really, I'm also really kind of interested in hearing about um, how that works interprofessionally and how do we... Um, you know, make these kind of joint opportunities work? Mm. Well, David mentioned so many of the things that I, I would have answered with, <laughs> I, I would say. So of course he, he has, uh, he's already brought some things to the forefront. I, I think just to piggyback on that just a little bit, um, I think a key is institutionalization. If, if that's a thing that we can think about making sure, he talked about committed resources. And one of the things that has faltered over many, many years is that many of us have had grants, we've been PIs on grants and we've brought different kinds of initiatives forward. They have been short-term um, and only served with the, the life of the grant or at the will of the PI in a sense. And they haven't necessarily been institutionalized within the structure of the department or even within the structure of the institution with the different kinds of partnerships that might need to be set up across departments or even across schools and colleges. And that's something that we have to make sure um, is part of this diversity equation. So we talked about empowering leaders, absolutely, making sure that they have a voice, making sure that they are not set aside, um, meaning you know that it's, it's sort of a, a side type of position if you have an associate dean know they need to make sure you need to make sure they're at the table that they are in line with um, all of the the as i say uh, power rights privileges you know there unto pertaining etc et <laughs> and and just just making sure that um, those diversity efforts are are literally in line with all of the other kinds of efforts related to assessment related to curriculum related to um, accreditation and and other kinds of things that are so important to a department. Um, In terms of working across departments, um, there are departments I know that have um, looked at having diversity 
um, equity advisors in some cases, um, making sure that faculty have training for search committees and, and so forth. So there are a variety of different kinds of programs that can be embedded into the permanent structure that are going to help with the sustainability along that line and, and permanent staffing, making sure that your, your staff for this, that they're not on contract or they're not short-term, but that they are long-term career um, permanent staff, that's very important. Great, gotta invest, gotta invest. So we also have a follow-up question uh, for you, uh, Dr. Tull, and I'll ask um, Dr. Hildreth to weigh in on this as well. Um, so, you know, at UC Davis, you have recruited uh, leaders from across campus for your team. Um, so, you know, what have what's the value of that? What's the value for you as a university leader to kind of have that diversity um, from across the institution? It is incredibly important. So at UC Davis, we have a group called the DEI ELT, which is the executive leadership team. Dr. Lamour serves um, on that. And so with, with Michael being a member of that team, that includes all of the deans across the institution, as well as other senior leaders who come together monthly for an hour-long conversation about diversity. And um, in, in many instances, there are opportunities to bring forward various kinds of situations that have come up on campus. Sometimes there are opportunities to have facilitated learning. Um, uh, sometimes it's advice for me, but it's also a peer network, I believe, very strongly for uh, the leaders who are at the table talking about diversity. They're able to draw strengths from one another hear different pieces of advice about how to deal with different kinds of situations. Um, we can have a good exchange network related to how we are gonna move situations forward in equitable ways and also respectful ways, um, particularly if we're dealing with very sensitive topics. And all of those things coming together monthly, I think also helps with um, making sure that these kinds of conversations are not things that people feel um, uncomfortable with. When you're talking about diversity regularly within a group of peers and as part of a, a regular ongoing conversation, then you're less likely to shy away from topics. You're more likely to talk about different kinds of things when you recognize that they've come to the fore. If you've seen or, or had some level of training and training has been part of that group, then there's a recognition when there's an implicit bias and, and you can call it out. Um, if there's something that is sensitive and you're just not sure if it's something you should be paying attention to, then that can be brought up in, in a company of your peers. And um, knowing that there's a, a call in kind of approach and not a call out type of approach, uh, sort of a safe space where you can talk about things. Uh, if there's correction needed, we bring correction, but not in a way that's going to be, um, I would say detrimental to anyone's ego, but just in a way that says we're in a community and we're all learning together and we're doing this for the good of our institution. So let's see what we can do to, to move forward in a positive way. Thank you. Dr. Hildreth. Uh, well, I, I agree with all that my colleagues uh, have said, and I just want to add a couple of, one other perspective, which is during my time as Dean, I, I learned a really important lesson, which is that uh, I thought I had some really good ideas, but they really didn't matter unless I found a faculty champion to, to push those ideas. That if it came from me as a Dean, it was almost dead in the water before it even had a chance to, to take, 
to take flight. So I realized that I had to find a faculty member to be the champion of these ideas. Otherwise, they were not going to happen. So even in this diversity and inclusion piece, we have to find faculty members who are supportive of the idea because faculty drive the culture of a place, in my opinion. No matter what that place is, the faculty are the ones who determine the culture. And what we have to do is we have to normalize diversity as evidence of quality and strength. I've actually heard people say, when I go out to try to find opportunities for our students and our faculty, uh, I remember that one hospital system said that we don't want to soil our relationship with our patients and our providers and our providers by having uh, Meharry students come to our institution. Mm -hmm. That word, just using those words told me all I needed to know about that hospital system or the leadership of it. And we've not had a single conversation with them since that time, have no intention of going back to them because that told me that they have a per perception of us. All I'm saying is that you have to normalize diversity as evidence of strength and quality. And that's the only way you're gonna change the culture to be inclusive. I think of it as being able to bring my whole person to work every day. If the people who work for you aren't able to bring their whole person to their job, to their studies, to the work they do, you don't have an inclusive environment. And that's where faculty are key because faculty determine the culture of an institution. And they're the ones who have to normalize the idea that diversity means quality and strength. So faculty have to be engaged. So I've got another follow-up for you. So if you get that faculty champion, how do you get the rest of them along? <laughs> well, that's where leadership can also matter. That if those faculty members who embrace this idea are seen to be advancing and supported by the institution, I trust me, the other faculty members will figure out that this might be something I should take a look at. Uh, give an example, uh, and when NIH put funding at risk for the absence of diversity in certain programs, what actually happened? Those programs became diverse because dollars were associated with it. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily reward people for doing these things, but I do think there has to be accountability and thankfully, there are faculty members who do see the value of diversity as an element of strength and quality in their programs. So I don't think it'd be too challenging to identify who they are. That's what I did at Davis uh, when I was dean there. And because again, I quickly learned that I thought I had some great ideas, but they didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but I identified some faculty members who agreed with me and they became the champions to drive those ideas. So that's great to be engaged. That's great. I tell people all the time that um, while I work with all of our member institutions, certainly there's always going to be those ones that are champions. Right. And and sometimes you just kind of have to let some peer pressure run its course a bit. Right. So, uh, Dr. Acosta, um, how do you create um, these spaces to have kind of these challenging conversations about diversity, especially now when things are challenging, <laughs> if you will. Well, well, you don't have that that person to person space, right. right? We have now this digital space, right? Trying to do that same work, but I think um, 
No, I think safe spaces are really critical. There's just no question about that. But I think it really kind of starts with, um, when I think about the question, I think about four different things. And the safe space is really about, it kind of gets back to what Jane was just talking about, is that a safe space is where somebody can be actually authentic and behave truly to who they are, but also bring in their multiple identities. We all don't have just one identity. We all come to, we all come into a space with different identities, and I decide if it's safe enough to reveal all of my identities to everybody, the intersectionality of those identities, so that I can share um, my opinions about decisions being made, or I can be creative. But more commonly, what will happen if I don't feel safe, if I feel threatened, whether it's a power differential I'm, I'm concerned about, whether it's a racial discriminatory issue I'm concerned about, I will not bring my full self. I will be stymied and I will hold back and only present what I feel of that identity I want to be safe with. So a true safe and even a brave space is one in which ultimately you can be fully authentic to who you are. There's good literature out there that also talks about if I bring my full self to the table, then I'm going to show you all the assets I'm bringing, my asset bundle, so to speak, right? I'm not, I'm going to be the most creative and the most innovative person you've ever seen if I'm able to bring all my backgrounds to that table. And that's not easy in the academic space, right? Uh, again, because that's just not necessarily the culture that we hold. And part of that is being able to feel safe enough uh, and to reveal myself enough without fear of being judged, without fear of retribution or retaliation happening. And that's a real important key. But I think the other things as leaders where we have to pay attention to, they have, it's not just a matter of saying we're going to have a safe space. It's also we got to think about those three other things that, that that come to mind when I think about this question, and that is we really got to also think about and take the time out and pause to really understand people's different communication styles and how that style impacts conversations. We've all been at meetings where we've had the assertive conversationalist, where we've had the passive aggressive person, where we have the very passive person. And the reality is that we have to understand each other's communication styles in order for us to do that. And there's and there's lots and lots and lots of assessment tools and other tools that we can use so that people can discover that. But more importantly, to find out how does somebody who is passive, how can they converse well enough with somebody who's very assertive? And at the same time, we can't ignore emotional intelligence. Because that perceptual acuity of the other is so important for us to develop this safe space. I need to understand, I need to be able to read people well, and then I need them to read me in a good space so we can have this. And then last but not, I think the other piece about this is that the beauty about a safe space that allows you to have essentially um, intergroup dialogues, but learning those skills are so critical because once you learn those, and these are just facilitated dialogues that allow that, create that safe space, um, to bring in a certified facilitator or train up people, staff, faculty, to be a good and certified intergroup dialogue uh, master to the point that you can talk about any ism you want. When I was at UC Davis, one of my favorite offices was the UC Davis Campus Dialogues and Deliberations, and Renetta can talk a little bit about it, so can James, because their role simply was to go to different <clears throat> departments, go to different offices, and really teach people up how to become, how to have safe and intergroup dialogues with that. And again, I think uh, having tools like that 
is something that, that, again, allows you to move forward to be able to have some of those safe spaces too. Oh, such good stuff. Uh, yes, I think that folks really do need to avail themselves of, of <laughs> uh with, with resources that are certainly on the main campuses, like these kind of dialogue training programs. Um, Dr. Tall, I, I'm curious about how you're dealing with this um, kind of in real time at UC Davis during this last kind of bit of crazy year. And how are you creating, um, you know, these spaces for these conversations, particularly in the midst of so much racial trauma? frankly, that that the country has really endured over the last year, certainly beyond that. But but the last year has kind of been rough. Yes, it, it has been interesting and challenging. And quite frankly, I am very grateful to have had the the buy in of many partners um, who have helped in in this regard. So we've partnered with several different offices and groups. One of them is the Transformative Justice and Education Center, which is through our School of Education. And they actually gave um, a campus-wide seminar, over 800 people to start to talk about things that were, were very difficult, um, but it was based in and rooted in their research. Um, their research was on five pedagogical stances um, toward change. And those five stances were histories, uh, race, justice, language, and futures. The interesting thing about those pedagogies and, and that conceptual framework is that it's bookended by history and by futures. So that it's you're, you have to look back and you have to see what has happened, be able to face it, but you're also looking toward the future while not ignoring all of the other things in the middle. The other thing is that um, we encourage the campus to start to learn on its own, but not until we provided them with resources. So we came up with a, a website and we put a website out called um, Resources for Racial Trauma. It came out in the summer and it was right after we had done a campus-wide um, sort of memorial on, on campus, very short, about 15, 20 minutes. It was my, myself and um, our chancellor, Gary May, um, along with Kate and Carter, who was the director of our um, African and African-American students um, diaspora students. And we had a, a, a memorial for just a very short recognition for George Floyd and um, other black men who had been killed, um, who, who didn't have, who were unarmed. And we recognized that as a campus and, and had a moment of silence as a campus. It was broadcast on YouTube. It was broadcast on our social media channels. And after that, we put out this, um, this, this website which was resources for racial trauma. And there were ally statements that came from all across campus. And we posted and published those statements to show solidarity across um, the different units. But not only that, we started to then expand our programming. So our, our DNI practice, our diversity and equity um, inclusion teaching practice started to add different kinds of courses and classes, unpacking microaggressions, um, unpacking oppression and those kinds of things. We had film series on race and those were oversubscribed each time, um, over 300 each time. But by having those and by having enough of them, um, people started to have some of their own groups. So faculty, for example, um, started to develop faculty reading groups over the summer. 
And they started to dig into Robin DiAngelo's work on white fragility, for example. They started to look at how to be an anti-racist. They started to look at these other kinds of resources and then put out some of their own resources that were discipline specific that they thought would be helpful to their fellow faculty. What I had to do as part in part of my role is to also empower them to speak up and to use the kinds of, of work that they were doing to, to share with their other fellow faculty members. And that was incredibly helpful because I felt that many of them were sharing it with me or sort of sharing it in a vacuum, but that it wasn't necessarily getting out to the masses. And in some cases, we had some faculty who didn't think that they could or didn't think that they would allow, be allowed to, to sort of speak or, or that they had the place to speak. And so one of the things that my office did was to give them, um, to empower them in, in their roles to say, yes, you have the opportunity to speak and to share your resources. People made Google Docs and so forth. Um, we had some centers that said, we have expertise in this area. We wanna put on um, a, a workshop. The, the, the uh, Feminist Research Institute, for example, had addressing privilege and talking about anti-racism. And so by giving them opportunities, by empowering them, and in some cases, as David talked about, um, putting resources behind it, and James talked about resources as well, um, co-sponsoring and, and partnering. So my office helped to co-sponsor some of these kinds of events. And, um, and we continue to have those kinds of dialogues. That office that David talked about um, doesn't exist in the same way, but one of the things that the student body is doing is that they had people who were trained in that practice. And so we are revisiting some of that to see how we can move forward in that regard. Hey, thank you so much. Um, a quick follow-up, and that is about students, right? So we know that students Historically, in just about every movement um, that, that, that takes place, students are often um, kind of at the forefront, right? Um, and sometimes they're pulling the rest of us kicking and screaming, and sometimes we're trying to, you know, bridle them <laughs> as well. And so um, I'd love to hear your advice um, for our leaders on how to, um, how to figure out that balance of, of dealing um, and uh, coaching and guiding students in their advocacy to kind of push the institution forward, but also recognizing that one, they're students and that's their job is to be students. And two, um, how does that kind of all work when you also have to kind of balance faculty? It's a big mess. <laughs> it, 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 it's very interesting. And, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I came from the East Coast. So I came from Maryland. I was working at UMBC and with the University System of Maryland, the medical school um, in Maryland and um, with schools in the system. And the interesting thing I think that's different, at least from my perspective, is from East Coast to West Coast. Um, in California, students are really empowered to be leaders. And not that other schools don't have, um, I'll say a student-centric view, but I will say in California, I have found that the student voice is very, very important and the development of student leadership has been put at the forefront. And so I, I think that it is interesting that the students automatically feel empowered to, um, to share what they're thinking, to put forward demands in, in many cases, um, manifestos in, in some cases. And um, I, I, the interesting thing, because we value student voice and student leadership, then the administration and other leaders 
do take what the students say very seriously. So it's not something that's just pushed aside and students know that they're not going to be necessarily pushed aside. Now, sometimes that's accompanied by protests. Um, sometimes it's accompanied by other kinds of things that, you know, um, are, are, are louder than just a, a quiet letter and email. But um, there is a commitment usually from the, in some cases it's the deans, in some cases it's other, other groups of administration to actually address those concerns. And when there is a commitment to look deeply, to see, okay, what kinds of things um, are, are real issues that we need to take into account? Do we need to have some dialogue um, to really address some of the things that they've put forward and recognize that yes, indeed, these are things that we have not ignored or have not looked at very closely. And we really need to do that if we're trying to be a better institution and one that's gonna serve our students. And, and if we're gonna role model what it means to be um, servant leaders in, in some cases. And so um, balancing that has been important, but getting faculty involved can be a, an issue as well. One of the things that the National Science Foundation did is they looked at some of the programs that were funded through the advanced network. So the advanced network um, was a, a program and still is a program to, um, to advance and elevate women faculty, particularly into leadership positions. And the University of Michigan had a program called Stride um, where Stride looked at some of the top PIs. And when I say top PIs, I'm talking about PIs who had very large um, NIH R01s and, and, and large scale grants, for example, um, to see if they would be interested in, in one sense, being diversity leaders and advocates. Um, and one of the things that they had to do in this, in this early piece of the way that Stride was uh, set up is that they were not necessarily from an underrepresented group. In many cases, they were white faculty um, so as to not put the tax or the burden on faculty who were traditionally underrepresented in those fields. And they had reading lists and assignments and, and ways of learning. Um, they were discussing these different kinds of things and learned how to be advocates um, for diversity, equity, inclusion. And other schools have taken on that model. So sometimes there's a small stipend that does go along with it or some course release time that goes along with it. Um, and, and those kinds of ways of involving faculty and having faculty talk to faculty, um, as, as um, James talked about, making sure that, that faculty have their peer colleagues talking to them about these kinds of things. Those are some of the ways that you can bring faculty into the fold to have more conversations and to, again, to be more comfortable with recognizing that this is a part of the academic um, pursuit, that it's, it's not just some of the other things connected to our discipline, but that these issues are interwoven within our disciplines. Okay, thank you. Uh, and Dr. Hildreth, I'd love for you to weigh in because I'm sure that uh, as uh, president of Meharry, you have probably been a recipient of more than one demand letter. <laughs> manifesto, something from uh, your amazing students. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, I, I think this is germane to your question about creating safe spaces for yeah. conversations. Um, one of the things I always try to do is to have some sessions where we leave our titles at the door. Uh, you know, I'm not president. I'm just a citizen of the institution having conversations about how we make the institution better. 
is particularly important at predominantly white institutions where minorities are often not part of the leadership structure. So there's always gonna be a power imbalance when you're having these conversations and that can change the nature of the conversation. So having some conversation in which you leave the titles at the door and you just sit and talk about these things as citizens of the institution, that makes a huge difference. Um, and the other thing is I call it active listening. I'm sure it has lots of, I'm not a, that's not my area, but I call it active listening where you turn off preconceived notions about motivations, why people do what they do. And I often tell people that I'm often in my career, the only black person at a conference, in a room, at a meeting. And some people would, would, would question, why am I doing this? What is my motivation? My answer is, my motivation is exactly the same as yours. I'm driven by an insatiable curiosity about the world around me. That's why I became a scientist. Why did you become a scientist? I'm sure it's the same reason. So don't make assumptions about my motivations for doing things based on what I look like, right? So we need to put those aside and just have conversations about the problem at hand. And oftentimes that leads to some very productive, although sometimes challenging conversations. And it's hard for some people to do that. They cannot turn off all that they've been programmed to think about certain people, but you have to turn it off if you're gonna have these kinds of conversations. It's absolutely necessary, right? And I get really burdened with trying to justify why I, as a black man, could be considered to be a scientist who is capable of doing science at the same level as anybody else. But it's the story of my career. And, you know, but what I found is that when we, and I'm very purposeful in making it clear that my motivations are no different from yours. So let's put aside the assumptions and just have those. When I was the Associate Dean for Graduate Studies at Johns Hopkins, I came to realize that many of the faculty members who were training the handful of black students we had were mentoring them with a different approach. They assumed they were going to fail. So the kind of supervision and support they gave those students ensured that they would because they started the relationship with the assumption that you're not gonna be successful. So the way I train you is gonna be different than the way I train my white students. It was blatantly obvious to me, but it was not obvious to them because it was an implicit bias against, right? So it's really, really important that that be dealt with up front. And sometimes, as I said before, all it takes is an open, honest conversation, not pointing fingers, just acknowledging the reality of our current situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think if we do that, we can start to change the culture. But this whole idea, I call it active listening, where you turn off the, you know, turn off the, the recorder in your head telling you something about this person sitting in front of you. That's really important. And that's part of what I call being able to bring your whole person. And David alluded to this as well. Uh, I remember giving a talk to deans of medical schools about diversity. And one of the deans from a, I won't say the school that was, but she complained that they could not train American Indian students because they spoke in stories, right? And I thought, oh my goodness, 
<laughs> I tell stories all the time. I speak in stories. What is your problem? And her approach was to bring them in and acclimate them to the way they do things. The whole point of diversity is to expand the way that we do things. So she totally missed the point. But saying that I can't train the student because they speak in stories, it just illustrates the point that I'm making. Those students could not bring their whole person to that institution. That's why they don't go there. So it's really important that we have assumptionless conversations, assumptionless mentorship. And if we do that, we can make a huge difference. Gosh, there's that that applies to so many aspects, right? Including admissions. We see that, um, you know, that's a, a key area, I think, where, um, you know, those latent assumptions about um, what's possible potentially can materialize in decisions that affect lives of students, um, would-be students, um, certainly missed talent at institutions as well. Um, So I'm also really kind of curious, Dr. Hildreth, about what your thoughts are on the most critical elements um, in partnering with minority-serving institutions. Certainly over the last year, um, you know, I'm sure that Meharry has experienced this as well, where, you know, Aha, a lot of people discovered that racism is a thing over the last year, (laughs) shockingly. Um, And then there's kind of like this mad rush to HBCUs and tribal colleges and Hispanic serving institutions. We have to partner. We have to partner. Um, And, um, you know, what I've told certainly my members at AAVMC is, yes, we want to partner, but let's really talk about what those partnerships look like and what they should look like and how to define success. And so I'd really love to hear what do you think are some of those most critical elements um, of of those relationships? Uh, I think the first thing is that it has to be acknowledged, has to be acknowledged that oftentimes the disparities in resources, not in talent. In other words, Meharry's been around for 145 years and we train excellent physicians and scientists one of our one of our uh, alumni alumna is a Nobel Prize candidate, a legitimate Nobel Prize candidate. She's a neuroscientist. Uh, we have others that fit that description. So oftentimes, when we're approached by PWIs for relationships, is always from the perspective of let us help you lift up yourselves, let us bring solutions for you. And if that is your approach, the conversation is over, right? Uh, I remind people that I'm at Meharry Medical College because I chose to be, not because I have to be, right? I've turned down opportunities to lead major institutions and universities. I don't want to do that. I want to be right here because we have a mission that's important and called for at this particular time, but we've been doing this for 145 years. So I'm offended, honestly, by people who suppose that we don't have talent among our faculty among our students, among our staff. We admit every year students that get rejected by all of the major medical schools, but by the time we're done with them, they're being recruited to those same schools as residents, right? And that and that just speaks to what we do and how we do it. So when you're gonna interact with these, with HBCUs, please don't make the assumption that there's no talent there, that you're starting from scratch, so to speak because usually the disparities in resources 
not in talent and the activities that we do. We have excellent scientists here who are the equal of scientists anywhere, but we don't have the kind of infrastructure that other institutions have. I tell people all the time that we're not gonna try to be Vanderbilt, which is right five minutes from us. We don't wanna be, but there are gonna be a few things that we do as well as anybody, just that the scale will be different. Mm -hmm. So when you interact with HBCUs, my advice would be to not approach them from the assumption you're going to rescue them. Because if that is the assumption you're taking when you approach them, you're gonna be rejected out of hand, right? Uh, and you're right, uh, Dr. Greenhill, that all of a sudden, because of George Floyd and lots of other things, HBCUs are a thing. Last year was the most, was a record-setting year for philanthropy for HBCUs, north of $300 million uh, for the first time ever went to those schools. And it's because we, just for your information, some of us, not me, call it white guilt, that all of a sudden, there's a recognition that for decades and decades, these schools have been overlooked and dismissed and belittled. <laughs> I still remember in 1978, when I was being interviewed for the Rhodes, for the Rhodes Scholarship, one of my interviewers suggested to me that HBCUs had run their course. We don't need them anymore. Do not, don't you agree, right? <laughs> so even as far back as 1978, there was still a, a feeling among some in leadership that HBCUs were not necessary. But I can tell you, if it weren't for HBCUs, we'd have 50% or 60% fewer doctors. We'd have 80% fewer black dentists. And God knows how many leaders we would have fewer than we have now. All you had to do is look at the vice president of the United States who will be vice president tomorrow. So my main point is, I, I, I know I'm going on and on, is when you approach the the HBCUs do not approach them from the point of view, I'm, I'm coming to rescue you. Ask them what they bring to the table and what can be mutually beneficial to both institutions. That's the recipe for success. Thank you. Sorry. No, don't apologize. Yes, I, as I put in the chat, um, it, you know, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Tuskegee, uh, we would probably have 70% less um, uh, uh, DVMs um, of color in, in the U.S. and particularly of African-Americans. And so uh, don't apologize. Um, Dr. Acosta, I want to get you back in here. And, and I'm really kind of curious um, as, as a colleague at, in the association world, but having also been um, at an institution, what are some of your thoughts on, on this and particularly um, elements, um, other elements of, of consideration for predominantly white institutions that are, are looking to partner or collaborate with minority serving institutions? Okay. I love, I love what James said because he's spot on. With that, you know, for me, what it conjured up and triggered for me as I was listening is that, you know, sometimes we don't draw from our prior experiences. And it just reminds me so much. There's a basic experience that we all have. If I'm going to, if I'm going to approach um, a community of color, if I'm going to approach Latino uh, community, a black community, an indigenous community, the reality is, is that you are, you are invited to come, right? You are a guest. Um, but so many times I remember about communities who refused to do further um, research as they felt that they always were giving to, uh, to us as ivory towers for our research. 
but they also realized there came a day where they realized they weren't getting anything back, right? There was always these expectations and no one ever asked them what they wanted as well. So I use that experience of saying the same sort of thing with MSIs, uh, with HBCUs, with MSIs, HSIs. The reality is that, number one, I think don't make assumptions of what you may know about that school. And I think that's, you know, changes trying to drive down. You know, I use the old adage of when you've seen one MSI, when you've seen one HSI, you've only seen one MSI, HSI. The reality is that they're all not the same. And they're in it demands an appreciation of how they may be different from one another and appreciate that value for what that is. Because what this is really about is relationship building. How do I build, how do I get them to understand uh, that I can be trustworthy? They have to approach it in the sense of the distrust that has been laid out historically for years. And the reality is predominantly white institutions, again, need to take a step back and try to understand that first. Before I approach a community, I need to understand the historical trauma that my particular institution had with that community. Just taking the pause and understand that and just listen, listen intently and actively like James says, is that's gold. Those are golden nuggets to help you prepare to build that relation because this is really about relationship building and not forget about those basics. So often we go in, um, predominantly white institutions so often we go in to the MSIs or HSIs with the expectation of getting something for themselves. And I think it's important about for, again, the, the institutions, the PWIs to walk in their shoes. Because again, the, the flip side of this is that what's in it for them? What's in it for the MSI to work with a predominantly white institution? You know, what's the return on investment for that MSI or HSI? And those conversations I think are really critical on that point. Even asking a simple question, the PDM and TWI asking a simple question such as, what is the historical trauma that I need to be aware of that I may have be a cause, right? What's my relationship? I may have not been here historically in the past when these things with trauma was done, but I need to understand that relationship between my school and your school. What is it about? That's where it starts. And then it starts for us to be to being silent and to us intently listening to that, not to defend it, but ascending to really understand where we're starting that relationship and how do I, and then asking the simple question, how do we build from there sort of a thing. You can certainly bring ideas to that table because the most successful relationships and partnerships that I've seen with MSIs, HBCUs and HSIs is that there's a sharing of this faculty, for example, and it's reciprocal on both sides from visiting scholar lectures, seminars on how to be a successful faculty member, you know, teaching in one of the summer pipeline programs, sorts of things where PWI will basically ask if that's what they want, right? But reciprocally inviting them also into your institution to do the same, share those faculty resources, share those research opportunities as well. That it's not just a one-way street, but it's a two-way street in the sense of providing graduate students from MSIs, HSIs, those fellowships, but also understanding from PWI, I can also, you know, getting back to James's point that we do excellent work and excellent research too. Maybe you ought to come over here and maybe develop a different perspective of how you approach your research through the lens of what we do in an HBCU or an MSI, HSI, et cetera. And then lastly, I think it's this other, this other piece of there's nothing that can bring a school closer together by that shared mentorship, the shared sponsorship, 
you know, for the students, for the early career faculty with each other and making them very equal. Um, they don't, we don't do that and we don't do that freely. But when I talk to schools that have successfully done that, that works, that, that has really kind of elevated that relationship and also the trustworthiness even forward. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Tall, um, I am really interested in kind of hearing your, your thoughts on um, how to deal with um, some of the air quote new revelations about less savory histories around institutions. And, and certainly um, Dr. Acosta just kind of alluded to that kind of, you know, what is that historical trauma and what role does the institution have in it? And, and certainly, you know, Dr. Hildreth having uh, been at Johns Hopkins, this, this recent air quote, again, revelation that, that Johns Hopkins was a slave owner and I mean, I'm from the, the the region and I was just like, this is news. I thought we all agreed on that some time ago. Um, but but how, um, you know, how does your institution and how does your office kind of counsel, um, you know, the university and how do you wrestle with that? Um, certainly, you know, students typically are quick to respond. Alumni, everybody responds when, you know, these revelations um, about, um, the the institution's history, um, maybe sorted history, kind of come to light. What advice can you share, um, you know, about how to deal with that? That's such an interesting question. <laughs> such a very very interesting question, um, because it's 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 something that we're grappling with, and I'm, I'm sure that a lot of other institutions are grappling with the same thing. I think the first thing that has to happen is that there have to be enough people to recognize what the history is, um, who have researched it, and who are, um, in one sense, seen as, as leaders. Sometimes it's the historians who are part of the faculty, um, others who have have presented at conferences, who have written the journal articles about this, and have them give talks, um, give discussions and lead discussions with the university because sometimes there can be leaders who might still have doubts or who might not even know how to um, talk about the situations and in some cases still use language that may not necessarily be the best language to use when talking about the situations. And so um, I think institutions have to recognize who their um, who their experts are in various spaces, um, bring those experts to the table for conversation, invite them to um, be part of presentations and, and discussions across campus. Um, those kinds of things are important. And um, I, I think the other thing is when there are opportunities, for example, for um, writing reports or having ta a task force or having a committee to make sure that there's transparency to share those kinds of documents widely so that people can get used to recognizing what the history is and, um, and, and be comfortable with it. it I will say that I, I was on one task force very recently. I didn't lead it, but I was part of it that I thought was just really thoughtful in the way that they tried to look at history. So they would have these meetings that were um, a, a little bit more frequent than once a month, but they would bring in experts to talk with the members of the task force 
about everything related to land and what the buildings meant and who the people were who were involved. And they brought people on both sides and invited dialogue, no matter what that dialogue was. And, and we had an outside consultant, but a trusted consultant to lead us through that kind of conversation in a very thoughtful way to make sure that people were heard and that people's um, um, concerns were noted. And I think doing that in a respectful way has been very, very helpful. And then once the history sort of bubbles up, um, it, has to be, it has to be a transparent process where it's shared. So this is where um, your strategic communications come in and having good partnerships with them to say, this is our part of our history. We have to acknowledge that it's part of our history. Um, if there are some things that need to be made up related to it to address it, then those things need to come to the forefront. Uh, and then here are some things that we're now going to do in the future in partnership sometimes with the communities who have been most impacted. Um, we have had on campus racial healing circles. Um, we have had mental health professionals who have, um, who have taken on the leadership role in leading some of those kinds of areas. And in some cases, it has been um, sessions, psychological-based sessions and some Areas There have been group sessions where people needed to process together in community. Um, but then also talking with, again, the groups that have been highly impacted to talk about how we can move forward and in involving them in the conversation. So you can't have these kinds of discussions and dialogues. And then the people who are impacted, and, and particularly in these cases, um, from various racial backgrounds, um, and, and leave them out of the conversation. They need to be part of the conversation as well. Great, thank you so much. Um, so I've got another question for you, Dr. Tall. How do you deal with alumni who are not down with the cause, <laughs> right? Um, because, you know, certainly I spent quite a bit of time on social media and that's kind of where a lot of folks flock. Um, you know, they'll flock to, to institutions, social media pages, and they're like, I don't want this degree anymore. And I'm never giving another red cent and all of these kinds of things. How do you um, engage those folks in meaningful ways to kind of open that dialogue, to kind of still include them, to bring, try to bring them around? So this is where your development office also <laughs> comes in. So you have to make sure that you have buy-in with your development office. Because if the development office is, is you know, sort of... Um, light, I'll say, on their commitment, then it's going to be a lot harder. But if the development office has a strong commitment to DEI, and if they are doing the work related to making sure that the development officers are also trained, then when they go to talk to prospects, when they go to talk to um, alumni, many times there, um, there are methods of bringing um, common ground, finding common ground, and then bringing some of the diversity kinds of discussions um, to the table. And it's, it's interesting how alumni, if they are um, first approached based on, especially if they're alumni donors, and if, they're, if you bring to them the approach that's based on something that they want to fund anyway, or something that they're looking toward, and then talk to them about the diversity aspects in the context of what they're, they're looking at, 
then that can help to change the conversation. But the development officer needs to have some training um, to be able to steer the conversation in the right direction um, to make sure that, you know, if the university has decided that this is our mission and that we are going to stand on it, that we're willing to go forward on it. Now, if there are alumni who um, just are not going to budge or to move, then the university has to be willing to say, okay, uh, we, we understand your stance and, and we're moving forward anyway. There are universities that have given back um, monies in some cases who have just said, all right, we, we recognize and we accept your stance, but that's not the mission, part of the mission and values of, of where we're going. And, and so we just have to accept that we're not moving in the same direction. Um, there are some cases where um, universities have had to dig deep to ask, well, do you really want your money back in this way? And here are the steps in order to do that. And then in some cases, I know alumni have not gone through those processes because they, they wanted to say something, but when it really came down to some of the other things that they would have to do in order to backtrack, they, they weren't really to, ready to move forward or willing to move forward. So, um, but, but having development, um, training for our development is, is key and extremely important and making sure that those development officers, when they get in those situations and have those conversations, that they are well-equipped. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I have a question for uh, Dr. Acosta. Um, certainly there's been so much written about diversity as a driver of excellence, right? And, and so there's a, a, a question um, from our viewers about how do you um, educate your faculty, particularly those on search committees um, who, you know, have they should really kind of go through that bias, unconscious mm -hmm. bias training and anti-racism training and all of the trainings um, to be on these selection committees. But how do you also make sure that they understand that diversity is, in fact, a driver of academic excellence? Yeah. So I think I think it's a great question. It's one that we always are, have been battling for years sorts of things. And so I'll bring in my my practice experience, uh, as well as kind of what I see at other schools that are doing this really well. And I think it really takes um, to go upstream a little bit, because the reality are is that if the school is going to, is very mission oriented and going in the directions and the DEI is a priority, then you have to ask the question: What is that? What is that member still doing on the admissions committee if he's not buying into it? Um, I think we go upstream because we're the ones who put them on the part who select them and put them on these admissions committee to serve. And the important piece about that is that they're the gatekeepers. They're the people who decide what the diversity of our workforce looks like in whatever healthcare field. And so there is a lot of clout that's there, a lot of power that is there because they make those final decisions uh, for us. And so it really calls for us having the right people, you know, on those committees. And if they're not doing the right work, then they need to be removed. Thank you very much for doing your things. And so, and so I'll just give you an example, uh, several examples is that um, those that are doing excellent work are the ones that are having term limits of their members, right? Um, and they're also um, evaluating their performance as a member. And it's related to the charge that the Dean has given to the admissions committee related to diversity. And so those portfolios that are being kept about how they screen people in, how they screen people out, 
and they disaggregate the data by race and ethnicity and gender and uh, sexual orientation if they have that data um, on the latter. Um, they are also looking, they look very closely in that portfolio to find out, so, and how are they grading and rating their interview scores? And what's the final, and, and how do they, and essentially in the last in the last part of that evaluation is that, so when they got presented to the committee, um, an evaluation of how they were presented, whether nay or nay. So it wasn't necessarily the outcome, it was more about the effort moving forward. Um, and then sharing that at the very end of the year about how you did, looking at the numbers, right? And who you selected and how you did that. But then showing the laundry to everybody, we, we, people held people's names confidentially, but everybody is assigned a number or a letter, so to speak. So you kind of see where people lie. And you're looking for the trend of everybody pretty much on the standard, on a typical histogram that everybody is about the same level. But you see the people that clearly fall out the people who don't sign into, who don't buy into this sort of thing. I need to be convinced on that, right? I truly believe that you can only educate so far, but I also think it's the individuals has to have a desire to want to learn, right? So the last thing I'll say, I think the real important piece about the work that we need to do as leaders is that I need to sit down with that individual and find out why are they struggling with trying to understand the value of diversity? I want to understand the resistance. I want to go towards the resistance instead of ready for going back. I want to use radical empathy to basically understand why they believe they do, what triggered them, what was the experience, what was the results that they seen? Was it just one one URM student that that flunked that they'll never forget, or was there a collection of them? What was your true experience about? What led you to this belief that you don't value, you can't see the value in diversity as well? My desire for them, my expectation would be of them, there's a plethora of literature that is out there that's been out there for the last 20 to 25 years, not only from our industry, but also from educational industry and the business industry that's there. And there is no question of the value for diversity. So I have to ask myself why that individual is, have they done the work? Have they not done the work? And if they haven't done the work, why not? Sort of thing. Making the jump from diversity to excellence may be difficult. And so I'm also willing to walk them through to understand that it's not necessarily diversity alone. Diversity alone connected to inclusion and also connected to the equity space or the three dimensions I think it needs in order to achieve excellence. But I need to explain to them that rationale, what makes sense and where the evidence is for that. Because that's not something that you know we're making up. It's not something that doesn't have evidence. It does have that evidence. So I think the onus is on us is, is again, I'm willing to educate, but they have to have a desire, Yeah. right? Um, and I think in all the positions that all of us on this panel have been in, we've been here before. We shouldn't have to talk about the value anymore of diversity because it has been we, we have talked so much about it <laughs> yes. that it is time to now, how do we translate it into action? I think is the most important part. And I think what we've learned too is how do, how do we also be, not be afraid in this venerable system to say, thank you for work, but I need to remove you from that. You know, we begin removing those challenges, we begin removing those exclusionary practices that we have in place that prevent us from moving forward. And it's not just that naysayer. It's many other policies that this naysayer has also blessed. So, yeah, thank you so much for that. One thing I, I have to say is that I think that there's also a, a role for some level of, 
of patience um, with kind of folks that are new to this space, right? I think that it, um, the, the challenge for those of us who have, you know, kind of just been swimming in this um, topic for so long is that, you know, the at least my own frustration, I'll speak for this is this is a Lisaism. Um, in the last year, again, so many people were um, like, oh my goodness. And I think it's all because we were home <laughs> with nothing better to do. We've already streamed everything that we could watch. Um, and it's like, oh my goodness, there's this racism thing. Okay, help me find more information about it. And and to your point, um, David, that you know we've been talking about it for so long, and we're like, just just go to the Google. There's there's a lot of really good information on the Google. Um, you know, so it's it's there is a need for some patience um, for those folks that are um, meaningfully and and, and uh, actively looking to learn in this space and and um, to to show some grace there. Um, I have a, a question, Dr. Hildreth, about. Um, about student travel. Um, and certainly, you know, I think that that we do have AAVMC has international members um, and our students certainly on spring breaks and on summer breaks and during their fourth year, you know, they're going to Thailand and giraffes and elephants and all of these kinds of things. They're going to the Dominican Republic, Costa Rica. They're going to lots of different places. Um, and, and, and I know that medical students also um, have these kinds of learning experiences. Um, how best um, do you all prepare your students to kind of go to these places um, for these learning experiences and kind of following the campsite rule, right? Leave places better than, than you found it, but not in a patriarchal colonialism kind of way. Uh, we always try to identify a local uh, person in the profession that has some ties to us. And that's often quite easy to do so that that person can give the students a briefing about the culture expectations I mean, there are certain things you do, you don't do, you just don't do because of the cultural norms of a place. So what we try to do is to make sure those students can hear from someone steeped in the culture or that, that place about what the expectations are. Uh, we also try to make sure we uh, make the students aware of some potential dangers of being in some places because not all of them are as safe as others. So we, we do our best up front to to arm the students with the kind of information they need to make the right decisions as they engage other uh, other cultures. And uh, I think we do a pretty good job of it. Occasionally we have a student had, that has to be brought home because of some things that have happened. But I think all in all, it's very important to me that our students have these kinds of experiences and we're trying to make it possible for every student that comes to Meharry to have a global experience of some kind, international experience because I don't think they can go to another country, I don't care what the country is, and come back and be the same person. Uh, it's just, it just, it just, it transforms them into a, into a different human being. And so we're trying to make it possible for all of our students to have an international experience. We try to do our best to prepare them for what they're gonna, what, what, what they're gonna encounter when they get there. I think that's very important. Great, great. Dr. Tall, did you? Do you want to weigh in as, as someone working at a big institution, both graduate and undergraduate undergraduates? Um, how how do you all get students ready to travel? So certainly teaching about cultural humility is one of the ways. Um, making sure that there is, uh, as, as was already mentioned, um, 
an understanding of the land, of the people, um, understanding that as Westerners, in, in a sense, that we are not necessarily the all-knowing and don't have the right to just sort of um, trample our culture in, in a different place and space. But um, just making sure that that training is there, and it's not just for the students, sometimes we have to do it for the faculty um, as well, to make sure that we're, we're going in in a, in a, a humble way and, and not trying to have a savior complex, but actually um, learning and growing and understanding the assets that the, um, if it's another country that they bring to the table um, and, and pushing forward in that way. Great, thank you. And another question for you, Dr. Tall, um, social media. Um, certainly, I think all of us have have you know seen um, lots of things, either personally on social media or things that make news because they were on social media. Especially in this kind of context where we're talking about free speech and well, I should be able to say that, and and this is you know particularly with faculty, but certainly with students um, and alums. Um, how what guidance? Um, can you give on how veterinary leaders should be responding to squabbles on social media? Another very interesting <laughs> question. So, um, I'm sorry, I, these, I, weren't on the, these weren't on the pre-approved list. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so I, I've had several social media accounts and I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, and when I was um, sort of in my faculty role, one of the things I, I used to tell people in various organizations is um, if you tweet about things that are happening in your discipline, then that is one way to go where you can talk about diversity and diverse kinds of issues within your discipline. So if you're in biology, in this case, if you're in veterinary medicine and you're talking about various kinds of things that um, espouse the values of your school and your university in the context of veterinary medicine, then that is, in one sense, a safe way to go. If you go uh, sort of beyond that with your opinions about different kinds of things, then that's up to you to see how you want to navigate that. Um, different people have different philosophies. So some people use their social media accounts to talk about all kinds of things, um, whatever is on their mind related to what's going in the world. And, and that's how they have built their reputations in some cases. Um, and they are fine with doing that. And in, you know, in, in the realm of free speech, they are ready to take on any of the um, responses that come for or against, and, and they choose to do that. I, I think people have to decide if you want to um, sort of take on some of there, there are trolls who are, are looking for um, different kinds of things to say that are going to be against what you say. And there are some things that you just ignore if you feel that, you know what, I, I really don't want to answer this. I don't want to sort of go down the rabbit hole of trying to argue a point that I feel very strongly about. I have my institution to back me up and so forth. There are some things that you say, regardless, I feel really strongly about this. I have to put it out there. And there are other things where you can refrain. So there, there's a lot of, of I think, self-discipline that has to go on. But I think that this is, this is where in my role, it's, I have found it to be interesting because I have seen that in some cases where something needs to be said, 
um, related to a situation that's going on in the country or the world. If I put it out there, then I, I think that other campus leaders feel um, a bit better, safer, that it's okay to talk about. If our chancellor puts a statement out and has um, something on his Twitter account, then it's it's a little bit safer to follow, follow suit and you can feel pretty comfortable about following suit. If it's something where your institution is going one way and let's say the leaders of the institution are going one way and you feel that it's entirely, you know, something on the opposite side, then you have to decide whether or not you are, are ready to do that. And if there are consequences, be ready to take the consequences. So let's just say hypothetically that um, as, as a dean, you really wanna push DEI forward and you really want to say more and you have an institution that may not quite be ready to put forth public statements. And so you're not sure if you should go ahead and do that, but you feel very strongly about it. Um, I think you have to decide how strongly you feel about it and whether or not you're willing, willing to stake your reputation on, um, on principle, on principle of DI. And there are people who have done that. They have already said, um, you know, yes, I have tenure, but for if, if the institution decides that they want to remove me, then I'm fine with that because I'm gonna stand up for what's right and I'm gonna fight for it. The interesting thing about social media though, particularly in DEI spaces, is there's a lot of crowdsourcing. And so there are people who will stand behind um, a person when they're speaking up and they say, well, we'll have your back and we're watching this situation closely and we will let you know others at the university know that we are watching this situation very closely. Um, organizations though, also have a role to play, I think, because when organizations also stand up for DEI principles and they showcase that in social media, then that's a way that um, individual faculty members or deans or, or others can also sort of retweet or, or copy or like something that their um, disciplinary society is doing and, and follow suit in that way. Hey, I wanna certainly give uh, my other panelists any opportunities to weigh in on the social media question. Uh. <laughs> I would just say, I think that um, being at the association now, um, now going on four years um, versus being in academia um, when I was at UC Davis prior to that, you know, I am so grateful for the Office of Communications that we have. I think we have a total different outlook as an, as an organization that now, even with our new leader, uh, we used to, the AAMC used to kind of sit back and wait to see how everybody else was going to respond to things and they weren't nimble. But having a, but understanding now it's so important for us that are in leadership positions. And I would add um, AAVMC, I would add, but even our institutions itself. I think it's so important because of the changing times that we have right now and all the events occurring on that we give voice and we be proactive, um, give voice to veterinary medicine, give voice to academic medicine and be out there and not wait um, uh, be willing to take the risks that we need um, because it's so much easier to be in the forefront, explain where you're, you know, what your, what your position is related to something. And certainly over the last, uh, certainly over the last four years that I've been at the AAMC, it's, um, it's been an eye opener because it just, this, this is a two to three, every, 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 it seems like two or three times a day we're putting yes. things out because of how much stuff was coming out from the Hill. Um, but it was a wonderful lesson in time to think about um, that as well. 
as an as an organization, we also have somebody that fishes all the time, the social media, to look for those. And so having taken advantage of that, I think, is really helpful so that I don't have to go out and begin uh, looking for that and fishing and trolling for that sort of pieces as well. And then again, I totally agree with Renetta. You make that decision about what you're going to respond to and not respond to, because I think um, um, there's some agitation out there just for the purpose of agitating as opposed to really finding what's the meaningful message that we really want to get out and stand by um, for that. And then the last thing I'd say, the difference I've seen is that um, we're now in the world of giving press conferences and being very proactive and you contact you know, some of the uh, some of the journalists themselves and say, hey, um, here are a couple of ideas. Let's meet. Let's talk about these sorts of things. And we'd like you to come to us, you know, for our opinion. So we're taking this proactive view instead of waiting for all this other stuff to come through. It's really interesting. That whole mindset's a brand new one for me, but it's been such a wonderful education the last four years of that, how much a lot of the journalists, you know, want to be in the front end themselves and want that voice and also want to give meaningful, have a meaningful exchange as well. So sometimes they've turned it into a press conference. But, you know, just this week, we had two meetings with two editorial boards from two um, uh, places that are pretty powerful in what they say. But it was really interesting just having that freedom of exchange off the record exchange that you're really fine to be able to find that voice. And then they can also help you respond for you of what you see on social media for you and come out with a story and do an op-ed or that sort of piece. So I think there is a way to basically channel it in a way that that really works, you know, for the benefit of not only your organization, but for the cause. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So we are down to our very last question. Um, these, these sessions always go so fast and there are always so many questions. But this last question, I am um, going to ask uh, Dr. Hildreth to, to respond to, and that is about COVID. And COVID has, as we know uh, today, we unfortunately hit the 400,000 mark in terms of deaths in COVID um, within the US, certainly um, many, many, many more globally. Um, we know that this has had a disproportionate effect on communities of color, low-income communities, margin, otherwise marginalized um, communities, and challenges really persist around building trust um, within these populations regarding the new vaccines. Um, so what lessons um, should we be taking away relative to the legacies of discrimination, medical ethics, and, and just general health education um, as we try to beat this thing? Uh, well, the first lesson is that leadership matters, okay? Uh, those that we elect to lead us, they matter a great deal. And by the time this is over, half a million people are going to be dead, I promise you. It's going to be equivalent to the 1918 pandemic. Uh, it's going to be approaching that level of, of death from this. And it's all because of a lack of leadership uh, at the very top. Uh, there was a disregard for science. There were handcuffs placed on the two premier organizations in the world that should be dealing with this, the CDC and the FDA. They were handcuffed by politics. Uh, and so the first lesson is we have to be careful about who we like to lead us. And I'm gonna leave that alone. The other thing is we knew from the data coming out of China, China is a very racially homogeneous nation, of course, more than a billion people. If you were, if you smoked, had heart disease, asthma, hypertension, your chances of dying were 
were higher than the rest of the population. Come over to the United States, who are the people that have those things disproportionately? People who are black, people who are Hispanic, people who are poor. Uh, so it's no surprise to me that black folks and, and Latinx people have borne the, the burden of that we've borne here. And the thing that sort of makes me exasperated is that we've known in this country for decades that there's a, there's a health gap, right? And some people don't know this, but we spend $3.7 trillion a year on healthcare, but we're not even among the 10 healthiest nations on the planet. And if you set that apart, that would be the fifth largest economy on the planet. Imagine spending that much money on healthcare, but we're not very healthy as a nation. And so it was no surprise to me that back in March, we we're scrambling to find masks and Q-tips having spent $3.7 trillion in healthcare. It's embarrassing, unacceptable, and it all comes down to one thing. That's leadership, right? <laughs> and we should have had a nationally coordinated strategy that was not based on population. We took a population approach to COVID-19, which assumes that the risk is equal for all of us. We knew from the data out of China that the risk was not gonna be equal for all of us. We should have focused on the most vulnerable populations, elderly, black and brown, and those who worked in critical positions to keep our economy rolling. If we had done that, we could have cut the death rate in half. But what, why didn't we do that? Leadership. So I'm hoping that we as a nation will select people to lead us who are committed to health equity, which all comes back to the thing we've been talking about today. Uh, we're never going to live up to our potential as a nation, which I think is tremendous, unprecedented, until we have the difficult conversations about who we are and what we are. One of the things that really annoys me is having people, when they see what happens to George Floyd and they see what happens on the Capitol on the 6th of January, this is not who we are. Well, hello. Yes, it is who we are because it happens over and over and over again. And it's gonna be who we are until we have the conversations necessary to deal with this. And to your earlier point about race and slavery and institutions, there's a great book called Ebony and Ivy by Stephen Wilder that points that every major institution of higher education in the United States of America has been advantaged by slavery, including my alma mater, Harvard. Okay, so this is not new. Here in Tennessee, we're having great debates about statues commemorating Confederate leaders, including the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. When they asked me whether or not the statue should be removed, my answer was, every time I look at those things, I see the dangling bodies of black folks hanging from trees and the mournful cries of their family members watching people get burned alive. So you ask me if I think they should be there. Of course not but they've been there for decades. So I'm sorry I'm getting a little emotional here, but we have a problem. What we're witnessing, this is who we are and it's gonna be who we are until we have those conversations. So my main message to you all today is what America needs in its institutions of churches, higher education, business, et cetera. We need to have conversations about who we really are. And all those folks who say, this is not who we are. Yes, it is who we are. 
until we decide we're going to be something else than who we are. Okay, so that's my answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do not apologize. That that um, was powerful and um, something that really needed to be said. And so um, to each of you, Dr. Tall, Dr. Acosta, and certainly Dr. Hildra, thank you so very much for taking some time out of your very, very busy days. Um, this has been a, such a great uh, conversation and I look forward to uh, featuring it on an upcoming podcast. So uh, with that, I will turn it back over to our MC, Dr. Laramore. Thank you again. Thank you, uh, Lisa, and all of the panelists. Thank you so very, very much. Again, inspirational uh, words, but also um, as exemplified in our chat, amazing uh, response from all of the deans. Um, you know, it's hard to hard to know your audience sometimes by chat, but I can tell you that you've stimulated, uh, and they're exchanging uh, resources as we uh, as we speak. And I think. Um, you know, when we look at the the, the common messages uh, throughout the session, and I'm not going to to reiterate uh, many of those. One of the things that James started and ended us with is the value of uh, and the and the impact of leadership, and the fact that that we do have a voice and we have a responsibility. You know, I think that was a common element throughout all of these uh, discussions today. Um, I think Renetta and and others have really talked about also the reckoning. Um, the reckoning within our own institutions and be able to uh, talk about that, uh, what our role was, what are our current systemic racism issues within our institutions. And so we can think about, you know, how do we uh, develop um, uh, a really a conversation in a safe a space, a brave space uh, for our students, our faculty and our staff to have those engaging conversations. That was a, a common plan. One of the things that I think was also really evident and a common theme is they have to be strategic and have it within our plans, be very um, intentional. I love the word that James used about being intentional in our plans. I think that's a critical element and we see that in all of our panelists comments uh, today. Uh, David talked about the uh, elements and, and one of the things I think he really made a great point of is uh, sustainable commitment. It isn't just about being awoke uh, from a, a single incident. It's, a real, it's about sustainability and a sustained commitment within our institutions. And that does include finance. I think it's very critical that we support uh, these initiatives within our institutions. And that was brought out in the conversation. Uh, that includes things like performance evaluations of our leaders. And I know uh, I am evaluated that way and, and I can tell you it has an effect. And James uh, brought that out and all of us, I think would agree to that, that if you can't measure it, you can't uh, move it. And I think that that's something that's very critical. Um, mentorship and the development of leaders uh, was a common theme throughout as well. And I think all of us are involved in mentorship, uh, the ways that we develop future leaders. But we also have co be cognizant of the fact that if we place undue burdens on uh, those that are within the underrepresented uh, classes, that we are going to end up having a problem. And that is, uh, they may actually feel that stress of, of that. So approaching that in a very intentional way, and I like the way James put it, that be very specific in what your intentions are. I see leadership potential in you. I see you're, that you have very inquisitive nature about your scientific uh, knowledge. I want to promote and, and um, build that um, rather than trying to, to approach them simply because of uh, their color of their skin. 
Um, the HP, HBCUs, uh, uh, the, the historically black uh, outreach, very relevant today because uh, obviously AVMC is engaged in that. But also uh, I think James brought up some very important points about don't make assumptions. Um, and also have it an approach which is instead listening for partnerships. I heard several different times um, being able to listen. And that is part of that emotional intelligence theme that we heard throughout today. Listen to be understood. And part of that listening is to know what is the, the way that you approach intentionally these other institutions in order for it to be a meaningful partnership. Uh, we also heard about radical empathy. And David, uh, I thought that was a great term. And I think uh, that's something that goes along with listening, being very empathetic and listening uh, to what that means. Um, and we finished on the world that we live in today, which is driven by um, a strife uh, and social media. And how do we deal with that, both with our own institutions, but also our alumni and others uh, in our communities. And being proactive and thoughtful in the way we do that, I think was a very important point. And then James, I think, brought us to a, a really um, stark conclusion about health disparities in our country and how uh, the, the fact that uh, we do have to face up to our history and the fact that we are failing in our uh, public health uh, approaches. And I think veterinarians understand that we are part of that public health. We are part of that institutional uh, 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 answer because we do advance the health of animals, people, and the environment. I think we all have a role in those health disparities by reaching the communities that we want to serve. I also wanted to mention our next session uh, and uh, continue another great topic uh, for session number three, which is January the 26th. Uh, next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be talking about training the global health workforce. We heard about international efforts uh, today in our DEI initiatives. Next week, we'll be really focused on different models of training our global health workforce and the role of veterinary colleges and schools in that uh, global health workforce training. Our guest will include Valtrina Smith, who's Associate Director of the One Health Institute at UC Davis. And she'll talk about a very major federal program uh, on the One Health Workforce Next Generation Project. We'll hear from Ruth uh, Sadox, a Professor of Production Health and a member of the Maria Bashir Institute at the University of Sydney on their training programs in uh, training the next global workforce. We'll hear from Debbie Kachiva, a former president of AVMC and senior fellow at the Fleckner School at Tufts University and director of the Stop Spillover Program, a major federal program that is just getting underway. And we'll also hear from Stuart Reed, principal of the Royal Veterinary College and home of a very innovative program in a master's program in One Health. So they'll share their program and I'm sure it'll be an engaging conversation around um, training the next uh, global health workforce. And so with that, Andy, uh, do you have any final uh, logistics to talk about uh, and um, or Lisa uh, on the podcast? So I'll let you know again that the uh, recording for this session will be available as soon as uh, the Zoom people make it so. I will put it in the AAVMC Connect site uh, for you to share. Uh, and as we mentioned at the beginning, Lisa will be doing some post-production work to turn this into a podcast, probably two different sessions, an A part and a B part 
uh, for diversity and inclusion on air to reach a much wider audience throughout the veterinary medical community. <clears throat> so uh, that's it, Michael, and uh, thanks very much. All right, very good. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. everybody. Thanks, all. This has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To our guests, Drs. Acosta, Hildreth, and Tull, we'd really like to thank you once again for joining us for the session in January. Your contributions were so amazing. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thank you.